0: Things have changed since Bulgaria joined the European Union. They used
1: to be a close ally of Russia. Now they want the United States to be their best friend. This is the fate of the small countries. We have always been trying to find our big brother.
0: Coming up in the hour ahead, we pal around with a buddy from the Balkans to learn about Bulgaria. Or keep heading east to Iran. Americans are more than welcome to visit,
2: but you got to keep up with the rules. Iran is a country of unpredictable repression. There, there are not red lines. You know, the rules keep changing. And hear how people
0: in different parts of Europe have their own local preferences for how they like their coffee.
3: The Swedes like a milder, more aromatic coffee. The southern Italians in Naples like an intense, very bracing coffee. The Viennese like it slightly spicy. The coffee cultures of Europe and tips for visiting Bulgaria and Iran. It's all
0: just ahead on today's travel with Rick Steves. Many of the economic sanctions the international community has enforced against Iran were removed last January. And there was dancing in the streets of Tehran. But anything to do with Iran is not all that simple. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, journalist Elaine Sholino tells us about her experience with Iran that dates back to before the revolution back in 1979. I found a surprising welcome and a lot to think about when I visited Iran a few years ago. Elaine leads tours there today. We'll compare notes on what Iran's like and how you can visit it, too. And Fred Plotkin clues us in on the variety of ways people prefer their coffee all across Europe, from tiny cups of strong Turkish brew to mellow blends at a cafe in Stockholm or Vienna. Fred plugs us in to the delights of Europe's diverse taste for coffee. We're at 877 Let's start out today's Travel with Rick Steves with one of Europe's best backdoor destinations. Bulgaria is a real crossroads of powerful civilizations in the Balkans, both recent and ancient. It's also one of the newest members of the European Union, and that brings its own set of requirements that Bulgaria will have to meet. Stefan Bozajev is a tour guide from Bulgaria's capital city, Sofia. He joins us now for a quick look at what makes his country an exotic and fun destination for the curious traveler. Stefan, welcome. Thanks for having me here. Bulgaria is in the Balkans. What is the Balkans? What does that mean?
1: Well, Balkans, it's a huge conception. Even to tell you, I don't know what Balkans mean. You have to experience the Balkans. Yes, literally it means... Uh, mountain range, that's the literal meaning So it's that Balkans. big peninsula between
0: Istanbul, between and, the Venice, Istanbul right? and Venice. Between Istanbul and Venice, yes, Greece, and all that Vienna, area. yeah. And to a lot of Americans, Balkan means almost like broken in little pieces and always fighting.
1: Yeah, that, that's something like that. You know, we have the idea of greater Bulgaria, greater Greece, greater Turkey. Everybody wants greater, greater Serbia. Of course, greater Serbia as well. And if these dreams are achieved, we would need, like, three more
0: Balkan peninsulas. Now, they tried to make Yugoslavia, the union of the South Slavic people, and that lasted about 50 years, and it ended up with a big war.
1: Yeah, it happened that uh, the people there are quite individuals, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So,
0: in the modern world, we're learning uh, in a fitful way, maybe, how to live peacefully together, because nobody can be greater when everybody wants to be greater. Absolutely. It's an impossible... It's interesting to me how there's relatively little connection with Bulgaria and the United States. Have you thought about that? I mean, there's more connection with Bulgaria and Russia, historically.
1: Yeah, historically, it's much more connected to Russia. But you know what, Rick? This is the fate of the small countries. We have always been trying to find our big brother. Russia, Germany. And now many Bulgarians consider our next big brother. It's the States. That's interesting. So, I, you know, I suppose
0: Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, their big brother might be the United States, yeah. and uh, there's countries whose big brother might be China or India, and you've been in the sphere of Russia and the sphere of Germany, yes. and now maybe a little more, America. But historically, during the time of the Soviet Union, Bulgaria was famously subservient to Moscow.
1: Yes, you were,
0: There was a joke. How many states were there in the Soviet Union? There,
1: there were actually 15 states, and there was a, there was a joke that, uh, in the early 1960s that Bulgaria is going to be the 16th Soviet Republic. Like the 51st state of the United States, yeah, but, in the yeah, but in the Soviet Union. Yeah, but in the Soviet Union, of course. Why is that? Why? It's very hard to say. There but, is that Slavic but the fact togetherness. Is, you're, you're... This Slavic togetherness, to follow the Dedushka Ivan. What is that? Grandpa Ivan from Russia. Grandpa Ivan? Yes. Who's, now, who's Grandpa Ivan? Th- this is the Bulgarian idea of the Russians, as Grandpa Ivan. Oh, like yes. Uncle Sam. Exactly. We like have Uncle-, Uncle
0: Sam, and they've got Grandpa Ivan. Yes. So if you're good, Grandpa Ivan will give you
1: military protection
0: and oh, yes. good some trade good, policy. Yes,
1: some goods, some gas, some petrol, and we I we'll remember, be happy. though,
0: in the old days, the joke was that the biggest pig in the world was the Bulgarian pig because the head stayed in Bulgaria and the good parts to eat all True. went to Russia. To so
1: Russia. That's to the east, yeah. So you were mm. Uncle
0: Ivan uh-huh. got the yeah. better part yeah. of the meal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but today
1: things are different, and Bulgaria is actually in the European Union. How is that going for Bulgaria? It's been great. It's been great. Nine years we've been in the European Union since uh, 2007, and now we really feel like. Real Europeans. They're looking more Western instead of Eastern because of this European Union concept. Oh, yes, the great European family. And actually, this is how the help of our European friends, Germans, uh, Frenches, uh, they help us. They help us to stay away of uh, Grandpa
0: Ivan. So there's a little bit of economic incentive to look West. And if you're part of the family of Europe,
1: you know what who butters your bread. Yes, we, we know that. And we follow the instructions very well. At least we try. (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves.
0: We're talking with Stefan Bozadjev. And Stefan comes to us from Bulgaria. If you were taking a tourist on a one-week tour around Bulgaria, what four stops would you be sure to include?
1: You know, Sofia, the capital, the capital is a must. Or if you have an international flight, actually, you like it or not, you're going to go to Sofia. That's the big airport. You're going to go to Sofia. And in Sofia, you can see all the different layers of uh, history. Romans, then above the Roman street, an Ottoman mosque. Then you see a Soviet monstrosity buildings uh, following the so called uh, Stalinist Baroque style. Stalinist, Baroque. Stalinist so, Baroque. So
0: there's some, what you call, communist monstrosity is still standing there. And ar- there's architectural the- souvenirs of the 50 years you enjoyed as part of the Soviet sphere.
1: Absolutely, part of our heritage. Okay,
0: so that's the big city, like the New York of, of Bulgaria. What would another city that you'd be important to see? Another important city is
1: Plovdiv. Plovdiv, Plovdiv for mm-hmm. sure. That's the second biggest city in Bulgaria, but actually this is the oldest still living city in Europe.
0: Stefan, I understand that Plovdiv is uh, chosen to be the cultural capital of Europe in 2019.
1: Why would Europe choose Plovdiv for this honor? Sometimes I ask myself this question as well. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, the truth is that there are so many cultural activities, performances, uh, exhibitions, uh, opera under the open sky, some Nice quarters for hipsters. Yes, probably you're surprised that we have hipsters in Bulgaria as well. Bulgarian hipsters. Bulgarian hipsters. Tell me what a Bulgarian
0: hipster would be. How would they socialize? How would they dress? What would they eat and drink?
1: Well, actually, yeah, it's not what they eat. It's not only gluten-free, for sure. It's not vegan. There's a lot of meat that uh, they can eat. they're
0: enthusiastic carnivores.
1: Yeah, Yeah, but also... The microbrewery revolution is also visible in Bulgaria as well. So some nice uh, local beers could be drank uh, there in a small <laughs> clubs and small pubs. And that's, that's life. Very, Just enjoying very life. Nice.
0: I remember when I was there, the old men would gather in the park and talk sports. It was not comfortable to talk politics, but they would talk sports. If you go to the park after dinner and you find men gathered, will you still find them getting together and talking sports or what? Now
1: you can find them talking politics. 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 In the old days, that was dangerous, but now the lid is off. The old days are gone. The old days are gone, and presumably there's no fear talking about uh, politics. Is it truly safe to talk politics in the park now? Yes, yes, completely. There's no issues uh, about it, and that's why you can see, like, 20 people like organizing a small, very peaceful <laughs> talk uh, so with some would,
0: banners. What would the image be the last time you saw banners? What was their complaint? What
1: were they excited they about? Were complained they were trying to fight corruption. Corruption is one of the issues in Southern Europe. We are in part of Southern oh, Europe, yeah. in the Balkans. Uh, it's a huge issue. So, this is something that we, you protest. know, when we Americans know Bulgaria, a lot of times we think of the
0: Olympics and the Bulgarian weightlifters and the Bulgarian wrestlers were really the medal winners. And these are these big, strong guys with thick necks. And they're also associated with the mafia in Bulgaria. What is the latest with the wrestlers and the weightlifters and the mafia and and corruption?
1: Typically, it's strange to make these connections, but in Bulgaria, it's a land of uh, unlimited possibilities, unlimited chances. So you can have these uh, boxing champions or uh, weightlifters with nice costumes, trendy costumes, and then they are the so-called well-dressed businessmen. So they're the operators.
0: They benefited from the uh, privatization of the country, and they went from the maybe the corrupt operators during communism to the corrupt operators during capitalism. Sometimes the music changes,
1: but the musicians remain the same. The same. The band is the same.
0: Stefan, we've talked about the two cities, Plovdiv and Sofia, continuing our tour around the country. Where would you go to
1: understand the heritage of the country? If you want to understand... The real heritage of the country, the spirituality of the country. This is Rila Monastery. The Rila Monastery, R-I-L-A. And where is that and what would you see? It is deep in the mountains to the south of the capital city, to the south of Sofia. And it's an active monastery. What you can spot there, you can see amazing scenery and this small monastery located there. A small monastery,
0: centuries old. The yes, traditional it, religion. What is that religion again? It is uh, the Christian
1: Orthodox. I know, dear listeners, probably you've been to Greece, so it's the same, the same religion. As it's like Greek, Greek Orthodox, but
0: Bulgarian, but Bulgarian Orthodox. It's like the famous Bulgarian salad, the Chopska salad. It, it seems to me like a Greek salad, but chopped up into smaller pieces.
1: You're some kind of right, uh, Rika, uh, about it. But you know, we always have the fight with the Greeks. Actually, feta. But, Many of the Bulgarians believe it's a Bulgarian cheese. It's not a Greek one. Come on, come to Bulgaria and see that. Tour guide Stefan Bozejev from
0: Sofia, Bulgaria is cluing us in to the attractions of his country right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Kristen from Naperville, Illinois, is on our listener line at 877-333-RICK. Kristen, have you ever been in Bulgaria?
4: Yes, I have. I visited Bulgaria in 2014, and I cannot wait to go back again. I cannot say enough good things about Bulgaria. Beautiful, green mountains, friendly people, excellent food, just wonderful.
0: Well, great. Did you enjoy the the big city or the Black Sea Coast or the mountains with the monastery? What, what were your memories?
4: Um, we did go to the big cities of Sofia and Plavdev, and then also the Rila Monastery up in the mountains, and also uh, Veliko Tarnovo, which was another smaller town in the mountains where they have uh, an ancient fortress and a very nice nicely preserved medieval area.
0: It's changed a lot. I haven't been there for 10 years. You were there last year. It's so exciting to see Bulgaria changing. No more gypsies with
1: dancing bears. No, 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 it's not according to the European legislation anymore. <laughs>
0: Things have changed a lot. I was there 10 years ago. Kristen was there just a couple of years ago. So uh, it's kind of nice that Bulgaria is moving along and uh, the economy is kicking into gear people are free to talk politics in the parks. Yeah. Kristen, thanks for your
1: call. Blagodaria.
4: Thank you.
0: Stefan Bozajev from Bulgaria. Blagodaria. Blagodaria. Thank you, Rick. Rick. If you're up for some place even more likely to surprise your friends than Bulgaria, what about a trip to Iran? In just a bit, a journalist who lived in Tehran at the time of the Iranian Revolution and who's been back many times since tells us what she's figured out about Iranian society today. Up next, Fred Plotkin explains why it's not just a simple matter when you look at the exciting variety of ways people all across Europe prefer their coffee. We're at 877 rick There really is a story behind every cup of coffee. Fred Plotkin is one of our favorite food and culture experts. He joins us now to tune us in to what a treat it is to understand the variety of ways people all across Europe prefer their coffee. Fred, it's great to have you back. Thank you. In your book, I read that when people ask what do you bring home from your trips uh, as a gift, you say when you're in Italy or Vienna or Stockholm, the answer is coffee. So why would you bring coffee home, and, and why from these places?
3: Well, practical purposes are you can bring it home through customs, number one. Number two, if you bring it back in bean form to serious coffee people, they will then grind it at the moment they use it. But I will even buy ground and then vacuum pack coffee to bring it back. It's because it tastes good. It's because the roasting of the coffee is so important. What I find fascinating about coffee, and it may be my favorite topic of Everything in the food world is that let's take wine for comparison. If you make wine, you grow your grapes outside your door, you tend your grapes, you make your wine, you're more in control of everything. With coffee, let's say you have a coffee company in Trieste and you want coffee from Brazil, Colombia, Ethiopia, India, Indonesia, any number of countries, Jamaica, Costa Rica. You have to hope that they will be properly grown in those countries. Then you transport them to Trieste in a way that they don't acquire mold en route. Then you inspect every bean. Then you roast them to your secret method of roasting. In Italy, there are 700 coffee companies, all of which do their own blending and roasting. And then you have to hope that it's been well-preserved and that then you properly grind it, you add the right amount of water, and you make a coffee from that. It's a miracle. It's a salmon swimming upstream that miraculously arrives in your cup. So when we get a little espresso, it's made of 50 beans. And all 50 have to be terrific and survive all of these rigors to get to your cup. Ultimately, it's about where it's grown and then, how it's transported, but the transformation happens at the company in Vienna or in Trieste or or Stockholm, hmm. in how they're handled and how they're roasted, then how they're stored, so the Swedes like a milder, more aromatic coffee. The southern Italians in Naples like an intense, very bracing coffee. the Triestines like it a little milder, the Viennese like it slightly spicy. What I do, for example, is I buy Dutch chocolate powder, Dutch cocoa powder, which is unsweetened. And when I make my coffee, I blend a little Swedish, a little Viennese, and a little Italian, mostly Italian. I add a dash of the cocoa powder, and I brew it that way, and people say, boy, this is good. And it's because it's a combination of the best attributes of all of those places. That
0: makes me feel like i got to get my act together and
3: appreciate these finer differences. Now, my friend, I know you live in Seattle, which <laughs> brags about being a coffee town. I love Seattle, but I beg to differ on that issue.
0: And what is it about Seattle that's not a coffee town compared to Stockholm
3: or Trieste? or? Because or... the famous company there that roasts coffee right. over roasts because the perception is, and I think that this is an accurate perception, that we Americans like everything boosted in flavor, in fragrance, and so on. Is it kind of like somebody who just wants uh, full-bodied wine, or oak in their wine, oak in and their, their wine. white you're wine, right. so that you cannot taste the the grapes you're tasting the oak. Okay. But similarly, by over-roasting, what we taste is the roasting and not the beans, not the coffee, not the essence, not the plant. So, Fred, when you drop into a cafe in your travels, somewhere in Italy, a cafe that
0: that you don't know, but you can understand just because of the um, quality of the place that it knows what it's doing and it's got a sophisticated following that appreciates fine coffee. Is it sort of an adventure for you to, and then you drink the coffee and you go, oh, now that was kind of creative and oh, I didn't expect this, or is it a predictable experience?
3: It's never predictable because there are so many variables that can make it go wrong. But a proud bar owner anywhere in Italy will probably have a relationship with one coffee company. It might be one of the excellent big ones like Lovazzo or Illy, mm-hmm. but just as likely it'll be the local roaster hmm. appealing to local taste. And therefore, if I go to Umbria or to Bari or Torino or Genoa, for example, they're very different flavors based on local tastes. In Umbria, they like it a little milder. In body, they like it rather aggressive. And you learn about the people by tasting their coffee with them. So you could say that like you would drink a local beer, a local
0: microbrew, you might want to go for the uh, local roasters as well?
3: Exactly so. Because, I'm sorry, Lavazza and Illy are wonderful, and you get them everywhere, and I happily drink them. But often going to the little towns with their little roasters you learn so much more about the people.
0: Ah, that's very good advice. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Fred Plotkin. Fred's book is Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, and our phone number is 877-333-7425. Susan's on the line from Issaquah in Washington State. Hi, Susan.
4: Hi, Rick. Thanks so much. And I hope Fred comes out to Seattle sometime and comes coffee shopping with me because Seattle is a coffee town, you just need to know where to go.
0: So go go beyond Starbucks, in other words. We've got smaller roasters.
4: Many smaller roasters. Um, It's a very big home roasting community. And actually, I have a question for Fred that I've had for many, many years as a home roaster. Where do you think the roasters in Italy are sourcing their beans from? Because obviously they're not growing them in Italy being Sweden or you mentioned Ethiopia. Do you think they're mostly South American and African?
3: I know the answer. Coffee grows in the equatorial band above and below the equator so that you might find it in the Caribbean and in Central America. Colombia and parts of Brazil are on the equator. Most of the coffee growing in Brazil is in the southern part of the country. And it grows in West Africa, in East Africa, in Indonesia. I could give you a long lesson that we'll save for another time about how coffee got to all these places. But the key thing to know is that there are two varieties of coffee. There's Arabica, and the word in there is Arabic because it it began in Ethiopia, went then to what we now call Saudi Arabia. The other is Robusta, and Robusta grows in West Africa and to some degree in Colombia. When people make their coffee, they typically like the refinement, the wininess let's call it, of Arabica, but they add some Robusta because Robusta gives structure, and it also creates in an espresso that crema, that orange foam on top. So you may choose to blend them. The French like a lot of Robusta, in part because their colonies in West Africa provide Robusta. The Italians like more Arabica the Austrians, mostly Arabica with a bit of Robusta, and so on from culture to culture. And the sourcing is such that you have to look at the time of the year. It used to be that coffee was seasonal because most of it came from Brazil, which is the biggest producer in the world, Colombia being second. But then someone had the idea of planting coffee in India, because India is the northern version climatically of Brazil, so now that Arabica comes 12 months of the year. It is balanced with a bit of Colombian, and then the smaller countries provide the personality. So if you like spiciness, it tends to come from Ethiopia. If you like a certain gratifying warmth, it comes from Costa Rica. So you taste what you like. The Dutch use a bit of Indonesian coffee in their coffee mixture. It's one place to another, and that's the great pleasure of coffee is that you can keep trying it for your whole life, and you come up with different blends and mixtures. It's so personal.
4: You're so entirely right about that, and I think you're telling me after eight years of being a homeless, I've got a long way to go. (laughs)
3: What I'm telling you is you have a lot of pleasure ahead of you. (laughs) That's a good Uh, way to put it. Thank you. Susan, enjoy. Enjoy your roasting and
0: your tasting, Susan. Thanks for the call. I will.
4: Thanks for taking it.
0: Fred Plotkin describes himself as a pleasure activist. He's written Italy for the Gourmet Traveler to introduce us to the variety of culinary traditions you can experience all across Italy. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Fred's comparing the ways people in different parts of Europe prefer their coffee. Of course, you've got to have the quality coffee. There's also just the culture and the experience, uh, the activity of it. When we think about coffee in Europe, most of the drinks are espresso-based drinks, right? But you do have the Turkish style and Nescafe.
3: Mm, mm. I'm not even going to go to Nescafe. Yeah. Which is a big commercial thing. But Turkish style, in other words, a filtered coffee where the grounds remain in the cup, you find that to some degree in Greece and in the Balkans. The big story here, again, it's a history lesson that we'll keep brief, is that the Turks, the Ottomans, and the Austrian Empire, the Habsburgs, did battle in 1683, and ultimately Austria prevailed after losing to the Turks all the time. The Turks fled, went back to Constantinople, leaving bags of coffee and phyllo dough at the gates of Vienna. The Austrians looked at the phyllo dough and said, let's put apples in that, let's put cheese in that, or apricots And thus was born strudel. And the the Austrians figured out how to grind and brew these beans in a different way, not in the Turkish way, and that led to filter coffee. It was the Italians who often were dominated by the Austrians who invented espresso, which doesn't mean fast. To express in a machine is to push through with energy. And so the water is expressed with the ground beans to create that little inky magnificent delicious liquid cappuccino cappuccio means a hood and if you think of the capuchin monks of the brown hoods that hood of milk that foam milk that goes on top of the espresso is simply designed to make it more palatable to people who wouldn't drink straight espresso but the culture of coffee is that you sit you buy a cup And you sit at a cafe in Paris, in Venice, and it's yours for as long as you want at the table, that is. And so it fosters discussion, reflection, philosophy, debate, disagreement, and coffee clubs. Whether in New York there's something called the Coffee House, which is 100 years old. It's a discussion group. Whether in London where coffee was used for discussions or in Venice or any cafe, You'd gather for coffee, your mind would be stimulated, all the synapses fire, and suddenly you're more interesting than you were five minutes before.
0: Coffee does have that uh, relationship to people getting together and and, uh, discussing, whether it's high culture or whether it's gossip or whether it's revolution. Coffee shops, cafes kind of go hand in hand with that, don't they?
3: They do, and as you know, although my accent doesn't always show it, I'm from New York, where we have coffee talk. And we sit around with a coffee clutch and talk about things for hours. I'm using my accent (laughs) now. Yeah. With good coffee. What are a couple of your favorite coffee shops, not necessarily
0: for the quality of the coffee, but just for the elegance of the experience and the the history that's all around you? Because for me, when I travel, almost every city has a venerable coffee shop, and and I just like to sit there and, and be surrounded by all that heritage.
3: There's a beautiful one in Trieste that opened in 1914 called the Café San Marco, and it remains beautiful because Trieste has a long history of writers, Zvevo, James Joyce, many writers, and the tradition even now is that Triestine writers such as Claudio Magris, a leading Italian writer, write in cafés. And he goes to the Café San Marco and sits for hours at a table, Mm -hmm. not with a computer, but with writing, Mm -hmm. drinking coffee. People leave him alone. Mm. So it's a classic writer's café. In Torino, in Turin, there's the Café Mulassano, which is near the opera house. It's a beauty from about 110 years ago that you go in for a quick coffee, but the room is gorgeous. Mm. It's not pretentious. It's just gorgeous. And there you go in for a quick cup, unlike the one in Trieste.
0: In Vienna, you have all of these wonderful cafes that you go in. They've got the newspapers there and the beautiful pastries. And they even, even have a whole, almost like a whole dialect of how you order the coffee.
3: They do because there are so many different kinds of coffees in Vienna. One called a mocha does not have chocolate in it. It's just a certain mm. length of coffee. But I like Demel, D-E-M-E-L, mm-hmm. because they have fantastic pastry. Remember, the Austrians have the genius of combining coffee and cake. The Italians just have coffee. One of my most tragic views
0: in all of my travels was in uh, Demel. I believe it was Demel. It was 5 o'clock. The day was over, and they were throwing out all the pastries that didn't get sold. They don't, oh. they don't sell them the next day, but they have this ritual at 5 of emptying everything on the shelves and putting it right into this big garbage can. And I just thought, <sighs> no, give it to the people on the street. But they wouldn't do that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I do.
3: I do. I feel it, Rick. You know, the Viennese—they used to
0: be the world power, you know, and they had the big military and everything. But they lost, uh, started and lost World War One. In a way, they—that was victory because now they can focus on what's really important in life: great pastries, and opera, great copies, and great <laughs> opera. But uh, there's something too, having been dethroned as the big superpower, where you really can have a shorter work week and live longer. True. Very nice the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, is one of our favorite guests for dinner, for the opera, and now for a cup of coffee. Fred Plotkin's book recommends the best of Italy's authentic local culinary traditions in some 300 cities and small towns. We're comparing coffee traditions right now all across Europe. Our phone number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-RICK. Elliot's on the line from Cattle Country in Wisner, Nebraska. Elliot, what's your experience with coffee in Europe?
3: Well, one summer ago, I was uh, in Germany, specifically the
4: uh, Northwest, and that is where I got my very first taste of coffee.
0: And?
3: Well, you see, at home, my family did not have a coffee maker, so, and I really wasn't interested in having the coffee, but um, I took it just to be polite, and, boy, it was strong.
0: (laughs) Yes, it's strong. So
3: you were vibrating all day long? Fred, does Germany have particularly strong coffee? Well, Germany is a nation of 80 million people, and it borders on Scandinavia on one side, France on another, Austria on another, and they manage to get to Italy all the time so that it incorporates all those traditions. The Germans drink a lot of coffee. They drink it long, let's say, the way the Americans drink it long, as opposed to a short cup, and they drink it as a beverage. When I go to offices in Germany, there's always a big kettle of coffee on and they drink it all the day. So it's more a beverage hmm. than something they savor the way we've been talking about with the Austrians, okay. the Italians and others.
0: Elliot, thanks for your call. Yeah, bye. We've talked about Italy. We've talked about Germany. We've, we've talked about Vienna. Uh, you even talk about Stockholm in, in your writing about coffee and we don't think of Scandinavia in terms of that, but I know that Scandinavians have this tradition of the fika, where they have to have their coffee break with a nice uh, sweet roll.
3: A sweet roll made with cardamom in Sweden. Uh, the northern peoples, which used to say the Finns and the Swedes, consume more coffee than anyone else in the world. Hmm. Not the Italians, as you might think, hmm. but it's the northern peoples. So what's your best coffee
0: tip, Fred, just to, to close off our discussion here? When we're going to be traveling and you want to appreciate the culture
3: through the coffee, what's your tip? Use your nose. Uh, it sounds like a joke, but it's not. You can smell when a shop makes good coffee. And if something smells a bit amiss, don't go in there, just go on to the next one. I tend to go to coffee bars that are very busy, not because it tells me that people like it, but if you use a machine more, it makes better, fresher, tastier coffee. Good advice. Fred Plotkin, author of
0: Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, thanks for your insight into appreciating the fine
3: coffees of the world. Thank you, Rick. Talking to you caffeinates me. (laughs) Let's talk more. Good.
0: An American reporter who's covered the Iranian revolution joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves to demystify Iran for American travelers and to offer advice on how you can visit Iran today. When traveling in Iran, you still need a guide who can keep you compliant with all the official rules. But as I found when I filmed a TV special there in 2008, visiting Iran is well worth the effort. Earlier this year, the international community lifted many of the economic sanctions they had imposed on Iran. And while it's safe and open to visitors, there are still requirements you need to deal with to get your visa to Iran. Correspondent Elaine Sholino reported from Tehran before the revolution... She went back there in 1979 to report on the American hostage crisis for the New York Times, and today she's an expert guide on their tours to Iran, where she's been leading tour groups for nearly 20 years. Elaine reveals what she's discovered about life in Iran in her book, Persian Mirrors, The Elusive Face of Iran. She joins us now from her home base in Paris. Elaine, it's nice to talk with you again. Thank you for having me,
2: Rick. It's really a pleasure.
0: A lot of Americans don't even think it's okay to travel to Iran. Can you just give us the sort of the context here? Can we travel and 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 what is involved in for an American to take a trip to Iran?
2: Yes, it's perfectly legal and it's perfectly safe for Americans to travel to Iran. In fact, Rick, the first trip I took with a group of American tourists was back in 1998 when I was researching my book Persian Mirrors. And I wanted to see Iran through the prism of Americans who had never been there before. I wanted to hear what kinds of questions they they had and experience it as a newcomer. And that was, we were real pioneers then, but Americans who go to Iran now are still pioneers. Now, when you do plan a trip to
0: Iran, what kind of red tape is there? I understand you have to have a tour in order to get a visa.
2: Yes. Iran does not allow Americans to go in as individual tourists. You have to arrange a trip through a tour guide or a tour agency. doesn't mean that there, there can't be two people who go in and hire a legitimate uh, licensed mm-hmm. tour guide. You can be as, as few as two, or as we do with the New York Times, we take 20 people in per, per tour of Iran. Would you say basically
0: they just want you to have your hotels figured out and they want an Iranian minder or guide to be with you?
2: Well, it's not so much a minder, but it is a guide. I mean, don't forget, the yep. United States mm-hmm. and Iran do not have diplomatic relations, mm-hmm. and there is not even an American interest section with American diplomats manning it. So that it would be a challenge, for example, if you lost your American passport, right? Or it would be a challenge if you got your wallet pinched in a, you know, in a bazaar. Mm-hmm. And so there are very legitimate logistical reasons why it's good to have a tour uh, guide along with you. I mean, also, the Iranians don't want any trouble. They don't want any trouble with Americans, and they don't want some, you know, hothead who may not like Americans to cause some difficulty. One of my trips, we had a young guy who thought it might be a nice thing for him to go in Shiraz because he heard that Shiraz was the city of of opium, and he sort of said, you know, where can I go find opium on a Mm. Thursday night in Shiraz? Mm. And I said, "Ah, I don't think that's too good an idea. So it's that kind of thing.
0: I had the same experience, Elaine, when I went because we went on our on our shoot there a few years ago and we had yes. a guide and I thought of him as a guide and a minder. I didn't think of minder as a negative thing like you said. They just don't want Americans getting in trouble over there and, and we could stumble into the wrong place. and uh, He was very helpful. There was different security we had to deal with and so on, but we were generally pretty free to go where we wanted and, and do what we wanted to do. Elaine Cholino is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She's a Paris-based correspondent for the New York Times and a guest expert on the New York Times Journeys' tours to Iran. Elaine's won several awards for her book called Persian Mirrors, The Elusive Face of Iran, which she wrote from her observations as a reporter based in Tehran. We have links to her works and her website with this week's show details. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Elaine, you reported on the Iranian revolution from Tehran in 1979 when the Shah was tossed out and that was the year the Ayatollah Khomeini took power. I understand you were also there when the hostage crisis happened at the American embassy later that year.
2: Well, I was young and single back then, and I was living in Paris and heard on the radio that the embassy had been taken, and uh, I just happened to have a, a visa to Iran in my passport and got on a plane that night and was in Tehran the next morning. You know, sometimes when you're a journalist, you don't even think about, is it dangerous, until you get out of the country afterwards and say, oh my gosh, did I really do that? So you went to Iran on the day after the, after the hostage crisis? The day, the day the hostages were taken, I got on a plane, an and, overnight plane to and, Iran. And you, yes, could just,
0: you could just arrive and go to a hotel and they go, oh, there's an Amer- a single American woman, uh, yeah, would you like some coffee?
2: Exactly. That was it. You know, all the guys knew me in the hotel. It was the, still the Intercontinental Hotel then. They, I had covered the revolution, you know, and we had, mm-hmm. you know, we had been through a lot together. So they all said, Hanum Shalino, ah, you know, Mr. Ah. Shalino, welcome. Come back to it. Yeah, you're back.
0: I had this big, scary image of Khomeini, but I went to his tomb and I was impressed by how casual the ambience was at the tomb. People were picnicking. Kids were kicking a soccer ball around. There were study groups. It It felt very warm. And and kind of like he was a sage, grandfatherly figure, more than a stern uh, demagogue.
2: Mm, He was more of a stern uh, demagogue Mm -hmm. than a sage, grandfatherly Mm -hmm. figure, but I'm glad that they have nice activities in the (laughs) the tomb. It's kind of like going to the Eiffel Tower. It's like the Eiffel Tower of of Iran. It's a tourist attraction.
0: Yeah. For me, one of the challenges in Iran was finding that behind-the-front-door openness and honesty, because you've got the strict modesty police on the streets, and my understanding is, in the domestic world, things are more casual and relaxed and anything goes. Is that your understanding of it? And are you able to get your groups into that world at all?
2: A hundred percent, Rick. In fact, when I wrote my book on Iran, I have a chapter on the rules. And one of my rules is, you know, everything meaningful in Iran happens behind closed doors. You've somehow got to get inside. You've got to get past the door. You've got to get past the women with their their hair covered. And and you've got to get inside a house. or You've mm-hmm. got to get... Inside a beauty parlor, I was in this fancy hotel in uh, Kerman Shar, and they have a, a women's-only beauty parlor. And you can walk in, take off your headscarf, you know, get a massage, get your hair all done, and all the women are walking around all gorgeous, showing their cleavage and their makeup and their hair flowing because it's all—it's just women. You know, I wrote in my book that Iran is a country of unpredictable repression. There are not red lines. You know, the rules keep changing. And sometimes you don't know that the rules are, have changed, mm-hmm. and you do something thinking everything's okay, and and then you're told no, or just the opposite. I mean, I had to go to a, a, an immigration office in Isfahan this last trip to get my visa extended, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't let me in because they said, Hanum Shalino, we see your ankles. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, what do you mean you <laughs> see my ankles? They said, well, your head is covered properly, but you have bare ankles. I said, so you mean if I had socks on, I could get in? They said, yes. So I'm thinking, do I ask the tour guide for his socks because maybe they're smelly or they got holes in it and he'd be embarrassed? Hmm. So I literally had one of these elastic skirts and I pushed it down a little, you know, a few inches down, you know, and I have a very good, healthy Sicilian backside. And so it pushed the skirt down, you know, hovering below my ankle bone. So I said, is it okay now? And he said, it's perfect. You can go in.
0: Isn't that something? So you just got to know the, you gotta know the, the rules. Got to
2: know your way around the rules. <laughs> and, and your way around them.
0: Elaine Sholino's been traveling to Iran since before the hostages were taken at the U.S. Embassy back in 1979. Today, she helps lead tours to Iran for the New York Times Journeys Tour Department. She's written the book Persian Mirrors about her discoveries about the people and the culture of Iran. You can also hear Elaine talk about her home in Paris on earlier editions of Travel with Rick Steves. Look in our show archives in the radio corner of ricksteves.com. Start out with program number 450 from July 2016. So, Elaine, you take groups of Americans to Iran, and you've been doing this for years. When you go there, how free do you feel the people of Iran are when you see them on the streets?
2: Well, it depends on the day, and it depends on your definition of freedom. Right now, you've got this guerrilla war going on with women and dress. I was stunned going to Iran twice in 2015. I hadn't been in the country for for more than a decade. And watching women play with color, wearing all of these extremely brightly colored, tight-fitting clothing and getting away with it, you know, barely covering their hair. And in fact, in one hotel, I saw a woman like dart through one corridor wearing a mini skirt and high heels and no headscarf. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I don't believe I'm seeing this. But they're playing with the rules. If they get caught, you know, all bets are off. Hmm. But everything now is to be negotiated. Is Iran politically repressive? There's a lot of political repression. And you've got to be very careful. And you've got to know how to maneuver. And you've got to make sure you stay supple and you don't ever be too rigid or you don't alienate the wrong people.
0: Wow. I think there's going to be some interesting history as some of these popular feelings boil up and the government is confronted by this demand for people to have a little more freedom. What, what's the biggest surprise for your American tour members when you take them through Iran?
2: That Iranians love Americans. American tourists come in and everybody is smiling and hugging them and touching them and wanting to take pictures with them and handing over their babies to them. I mean, after a while, you feel like Kanye West, you know, that you just, uh, you know, the star that you, you want to say, "Gee, just let me go look at Persepolis, please." I, you know, I, I really don't want to take pictures with all your these trailing kids uh, following me everywhere.
0: That's the same experience I had, and it just completely was not what I was anticipating. And I've is been that right? I've been recommending people go to Iran for for the last five or six years, and that's always the the one thing that is so surprising is when an American goes to Iran, they're blown away by how people really. Are happy they're there, and you get this incredibly warm welcome.
2: Exactly. And that mood has really changed. I mean, we were in a hotel, one of my trips in Hamadan, where uh, Esther and Mordecai are, are buried, and there was a huge sign behind the counter saying, Welcome to Americans, with the big American flag. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Oh, my gosh, I was here when you used to burn American flags.
0: And that's one value about traveling as we get beyond some of the propaganda. Now, when we do yes. travel, a lot of people are concerned about the the American embargo what does the trade embargo have to do with tourism? Do we still have to bring in cash and not use our credit cards?
2: Yes, yes. Credit cards are still officially banned in Iran. And even though there, there has been a nuclear accord, as of this moment, there mm-hmm. are still very severe sanctions. So you can bring out legally only a very small amount of whatever, mm. you know, textiles, carpets, uh, turquoise, yeah. pistachios. Otherwise, you're violating American law.
0: Very quickly, Elaine, on your tours that you take, how long are the tours and, and what's the itinerary?
2: The tours are two weeks and just a little less than two weeks. We start with a western itinerary. We go to Shar, which is not very visited by a lot of tourists. And then we drive south all along the um, the western flank of Iran through extraordinary landscapes where there are still um, Bedouins and even through a bit of the Kurdistan and then we swing uh, down through uh, Shiraz, Isfahan, up through Yazd, Kashan, and back to Tehran. It's actually a quite an extraordinary itinerary, and you get to see. I mean, we saw rice paddies in full green flour. I mean, you could have been in Seattle. Mm. The green was so uh, <laughs> was so lush. I saw. I remember there in that same sort of
0: uh, environment, seeing scarecrows that were dressed modestly. It looked like the <laughs> modesty police had been there and even took care of the scarecrows. And we found, <laughs> I found shepherds throwing rocks at the birds, like uh, David with his sling and his rock and, and Goliath. And I found a blanket of of ancient sites, just all of these old Silk Road kind of sites that are just part of the landscape. It was just one of the most in, enchanting uh, places to travel. We've been talking with Elaine Chilino, and Elaine's written a book called Persian Mirrors: The Elusive Face of Iran. She leads tours to Iran with the New York Times. Elaine, is there a key word we should know when we go to Iran that, that is, is good well, for connecting it, well, with the people?
2: Well, goodbye is hadafiz shoma.
0: Hadafiz shoma. And how do you say thank you in Persian? Merci. Merci. Well, that's an easy one.
2: Yes, it's an easy one. It's just like French. There's a lot of French words in Persian. All right, Elaine. Merci and uh, happy travels. Thank you.
3: To <laughs>
0: We've just heard how women are continuing to battle the authorities in Iran over simple matters of how they appear in public. Let's take a moment to explore some courageous examples of women from centuries ago. Getting to know the stories of these women is why art history professor Anna Piperato quit her tenured position at an American university to move to Siena in Italy. Anna's furthering her own studies on the women saints who continue to inspire and provide role models to people today. It's also the hometown of Anna's favorite, St. Catherine of Siena, who serves as a patron saint of Italy and for all of Europe. You know, Anna, I'm interested that you've devoted your higher education and and a lot of your guiding and your teaching to a female saint. Is there something unique about the women who become saints? Because they're not really known for being submissive. It seems like they're more rebels than submissive, and when we look at the history of Europe, women don't have much of a role unless they happen to be rebel saints.
5: Yeah, and I think that's why I was drawn to them because they were able to break out of that mold and do things that other women couldn't do.
0: So what's an example of a a female saint who, who really inspired perhaps other women to be more independent and strong.
5: Well, this is the irony of it. So if we speak of St. Catherine, she refused to get married. She was the 24th of 25 children and her parents wanted her to get married and, you know, just continue the family line uh, and be a good daughter. She refused. It took her father seeing a dove above her head whilst she was praying to convince him that she was destined for the holy life. She broke out of all molds. She cut her hair short because that's the first way to make yourself not attractive to men, uh, not to get married. But she she did things she wasn't supposed to, and she did them in the name of God. Of course, a lot of people thought she was crazy, but after a while, they realized, or they thought, that she was holy. She was doing God's bidding. But why a woman? Catherine is very interesting because she was not able to control a lot, but she was able to somehow get out of marriage. Then she was able to get out of other things, like eating. <laughs> she the only thing that women could control was their own body. Really, the only thing that even then they couldn't. But Catherine refused to give in to the desires of her confessor who wanted her to, say, eat a little bit of steak. She said, no, God will sustain me. I will just eat the host.
0: So she was quite a rebel. She was a rebel. And when you look at history, a lot of people say, well, talk about the women as far as writers go and Mm -hmm. artists go, but... There weren't that many. But if you look at all the saints, there were plenty of women saints. There
5: were. And it's, it's, I don't think it's fair to say there weren't, there weren't women artists or there weren't women writers. They weren't given the chance. Right.
0: That's what we don't hear about.
5: Yeah. And Catherine actually was the first female doctor of the church because she wrote letters and she wrote a dialogue. She didn't write it, though. She dictated it. She finally learned to read and write by miracle at the end of her life because only a miracle could teach a 14th century woman how to read. Wow. Now, are there other women saints that that you find inspirational? Well, I really like her. She is she is my go to saint. I quite like Teresa of Avila because of or Avila because of the art that has been dedicated to her. I really like some of the early Christian martyrs for the tortures they endured and the art that came out of those tortures.
0: What's an example of an early Christian martyr, a woman who was uh, martyred and tortured? And well, one that, that we'll you'll see
5: all over Italy would be Catherine of Alexandria. And she was very. she's the patron saint of wisdom and education. And she challenged the philosophers to believe in God and to, to reject paganism. She challenged them. They said, no, she's got to go. And they tried to torture her on a spiked wheel. Uh, but the only thing that could kill her was chopping her head off. That's the surefire way to kill a Christian back in the day, chop their head off. But not before you do a few tortures, like St. Lucy with her eyes or St. Agatha with her breasts being cut off. You'll see these things in churches.
0: You got your PhD in 16th century Catherinean art. Yes. That seems pretty specific.
5: It's very specific. What's the
0: value of studying Catherinean art, and where might we see that in our travels?
5: The Caterinati or people who are devoted to St. Catherine, go to different sites, and there are art cycles, fresco cycles or print cycles you can buy to help you understand her life. And by understanding her life, you can understand Christ's life because she lived a very humble, charitable life life. She was a peacemaker. She was a healer.
0: When you are in Siena, what is the major stop? And then when you go to Assisi, what would you do to follow up on St. Catherine's life and art?
5: Well, in St. Catherine's life, I would start by going to see her head in San Domenico in Siena. You can see her. She looks pretty good for having died in 1380. You can see her head, and you can see her thumb, and you can see the church where she herself prayed.
0: Okay, you can see Catherine's head and her thumb in Siena.
5: Yes. What if
0: you want to see the rest of her body just to keep things well, her, complete?
5: Well, the rest of her body is in Rome, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, a beautiful Gothic church by the Pantheon. Uh-huh. And one foot is in Venice in the church of San Giovanni e Paolo.
0: You could put a beautiful trip together just on the body parts of St. Catherine. I think you could. Venice, Siena, and Rome.
5: What's wrong with that?
0: <laughs> Anna Peperato, on that note, I think I'll just say thank you very much for an appreciation of saints that I had never had until right now.
5: It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Grazie.
3: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Coos Productions in Paris and WBEZ in Chicago for studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests. It's in the details for each week's show. You'll find it in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in
0: Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.